you get to see the same patterns that emerge across these different functional domains, yet they're completely different problem spaces. And so for me, it's been a huge growth learning opportunity just in terms of learning all these industries, learning all these cultures, understanding the commonalities. This is the Indianness podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together because every story is unique. And today we have another unique story. I'm very excited to have Vijay Shankaran with us today. He's the chief technology officer for Johnson Controls, a Fortune 100 company. He also has been in similar roles at TD Ameritrade and Ford Motor Company. But I invited him on the show as he has done the very, very difficult job of transitioning from automotive to financial services and now industrial. But more importantly, he's digitizing a hundred-year-old industrial company and making it a leader in sustainability. Welcome, Vijay. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much, Sanjay. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Vijay, ours is a podcast that's looking to inspire other people who want to follow in your footsteps or be like you in some ways, et cetera. So we want to go a little bit towards what makes a person a person, which, you know, it starts from the beginning of the journey, some key moments, defining moments along the way. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about where were you born and just walk us a little bit further from that point? Yeah. So I was actually born and brought up in this country. I was born in Northern New Jersey outside of New York City in a small town called Glenrock, New Jersey. My parents emigrated to the U.S. in the 1960s to New York City area. My father was an engineer working uh, at Western Electric in New York City. And then my mother was in applied maths field and then eventually went on to become a professor. But we're of South Indian origin. We're from the border between Kerala and Tamil Nadu. So we speak what's called a form of Malu Tamil at home. Uh, we were one of the original pioneer Indian families emigrating into the northern New Jersey area during that period in time. And so I grew up throughout the 80s and, you know, in the backdrop of this one foot in India, one foot in America, cultural transition with heavy emphasis around education and studying and working hard and with constant connection back to India. So we used to go back as a family every two years back to Calicut and Coimbatore to see grandparents. So I've always had this full global perspective around being Indian and growing up in America as well. That's fascinating. So it was more a professional academic environment at home. Vijay, would you say that? Definitely. We also enjoyed ourselves, you know, as a family and did a lot of things as a family. And we were very close. I have one brother. You know, we did a lot of traveling and things like that. But academics and education were definitely a major priority throughout growing up. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of emphasis around other social activities in our household. And also just maintaining connection back to our culture. We spoke Tamil at home. Still to this day, that's what I speak to my parents in. I think there's always that connection back to 
the roots of where we came from. In addition to academics, athletics was also fairly important in the sense that we all played different sports for fun, mostly tennis and table tennis and a lot of racket sports. And then in high school, we did other athletics like cross country and things. So keeping active was active in the brain and active physically was something that was core to our family. So it was always assumed that you would, you know, academics, you'd go to study, you would maybe get a degree or a graduate degree. Would you say that? From the onset. From the time I was in first grade, probably. We call it the two profession role, doctor or engineer. That's what it is. That's That's correct. Uh, Yeah. Tell me about your brother. You have a brother, right? I do. I do. He lives here in Ann Arbor, completely coincidentally. Younger or older? Younger brother, three years younger. He teaches at the University of Michigan Law School here in Ann Arbor. So he's passionate about children law issues and foster care and legal issues around that adoption and stuff like that. And he's been passionate about that for many years and he's done very well in that particular field. Oh, that's fantastic. Maybe a topic for another podcast, but that's great to hear. When you look back, where are there any key defining moments? Because people say, hey, you're well-defined by 16 or 18 or 14. Any key defining moments that you can think of growing up? I'm talking about growing up. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think the key defining moment growing up, I've always really had a passion for technology. I would say that's very much been cultivated by my father because throughout growing up, whether it was one of the first CD players or playing music CDs on or whether it was different types of technologies in the house, my dad was always a positive advocate for adoption of more technology in our house and being early adopters of of that technology. So when I was in fourth grade back in 1983, 1984, he bought an Apple II for us at home. That was a defining moment just in terms of my passion technology because I'd probably hoard every one of my evening available evening hours to understand how it worked, began to learn how to develop software on it, began to figure out the inner workings of it that and also played video games, of course. But beyond that, it really began to expand my mind and give me further awareness of what was going on at the onset of a field that has been so transformative in all of our lifetime. You know, as I got into high school, that converted into working at a video store distribution company back when we still had videotapes to develop software for them. So that was sort of my first part-time job in high school was developing software. And eventually that led me to my dream school of MIT and to pursue a degree in computer science. So, I mean, I would really say that key inflection moment was back in 1983, 1984, when, you know, I got my first Apple computer. And since then, I would say this passion for technology and technological change has always been a candle lit within me. That's very, very important. So dad was forward thinking. He was technologically interested and had a curiosity. He brought a system home. The internet was not that prevalent at that time, right? Uh, There was no internet. So it was just the Mac 
and just you working on the software, maybe yeah. doing some applications, whether I don't know if it was Excel at that time or no, it was mostly, um, it would have been like Modus one, two, three. And then they started programming in basic and started to just really, there were some basic graphics packages available at the time. Yeah. It was word perfect for creating documents. Documents. That's kind of where it all started. And, but you could see the possibilities of where oh, yeah. it could lead. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, I don't think that we ever contemplated at that point that connectivity would go uh, yeah. from analog to digital. That really was a shift that happened more during the early nineties when I was in college, but certainly the power of what computing can do between Steve Jobs initially brought to bear and then Bill Gates. I mean, it was, those guys were like my idols growing up. So it was pretty cool to see that people could come up with these ideas and then transform it into this device that had such a profound effect on all the things that we were doing at home in the, in the 1980s. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And then that kind of spurred you to go to MIT. How was that experience? Because you were thrown from a pond to a big sea because now everybody was, I mean, you were probably the one of the smarter kids in school, but now you were with every smart kid out there, right? Yeah, I think that's, that was, that's a great way to summarize it, Sanjay, is that I would have to say, like, definitely a little bit cocky academically throughout high school. Sure. I really thought that I'm really smart. I'm number two in my class and taking calculus and getting A's. All the science teachers recognized me winning lots of academic awards and things like that, right? And then you get to a place like MIT and you walk into convocation and they ask people to stand up. You know, if you were valedictorian in your class, everybody stand up, 50% stand up, right? If you were a Westinghouse scholar, you know, in science and math, stand up, 25% of the class stands up. Uh, if you had a patent filed by the age of 15, stand up, right? Another 10 to 15% stand up. So you go through that process and it immediately begins the process. And humbling experience of the fact that, hey, you're just average in the context of this particular class. And we're in the process of being at MIT, which I still tell people to this date was my most challenging academic intellectual experience that I've ever gone through. It, it was life-changing in so many ways, just in terms of where I saw the value that I would ultimately contribute to society, where there were other individuals whose capabilities far exceeded mine and were much better suited to taking on deep research, for example, rather than my going into that particular area. It was also just very humbling in terms of experiencing failure in many different dimensions academically and just being able to process extremely complex information and really pushing yourselves to the boundaries of capacity. So there's an amazing place. When you're there, everybody says you hated that place. When you get out, you have such awe and respect for that place, looking at it in the rearview mirror, because it really shapes you and transforms you to be able to face all kinds of different scenarios as you go forward in life. Were there moments where you said, hey, man, this is just too much. Let me get out because I can go to somewhere else. I can be a king in a small pond. Right now I'm a, and again, I'm just, I'm not making that value judgment, but were there times where you said, hey, this is too much? 
I mean, I think we all go through moments where we question whether you should have gone to a different school. You know, I had gotten into to Duke and I had gotten into Cornell and I'd gotten into some other schools. And there's certainly times when I'm like, oh, if I'd gone to Duke, I'd be enjoying this warm Southern weather and maybe doing a degree in political science instead of math and computer science. You know, there's certainly always that whatever stage of life that you're in and whatever you're doing, there's always this question of whether or not you made the right choice, right? But for me, one thing that's always been a constant is I figure out a way to fight through adversity. And if I consider myself a fairly resilient person. And so, sure, there are times when you do that soul searching, maybe going through the troughs of being down, and then, you know, you figure out ways to find new beginnings from that, right? I think those times where I felt like I was in a little bit of a trough, whether it's through conversations with others or through friends or family, always have found a way to sort of pull myself out of that rut and keep moving forward. So you said you always find a way out of adversity. Just very briefly, how do you do that or what do you attribute yourself? Because that's a constant probably in your life. So I try to reconnect myself back to the why it's worth facing the adversity that I'm facing. Like, what is the purpose at the end of the day? Like at a place like MIT, the purpose is that it's this amazing academic institution that creates amazing opportunities for people in the future. And it really is where the future is being created, right? So that's why I was at a place like MIT. So when you sort of take a step back and try to reconnect to the why, but then potentially make adjustments in the day-to-day in the context of that environment, you begin to find ways to push through. That doesn't mean that stress doesn't exist. Stress exists every single day. But I think that there's a difference between stress and giving in to the adversity and feeling like if you are going to move on and do something different, that you have closure and that you have a sense of completeness that you came in and you did what you set out to do. But at the end of the day, I, I never wanted to be one of those people that would ever want to look back at a challenge like MIT and say, okay, I wasn't able to push through this particular challenge, right? So you find ways to reset, see the bigger picture, adjust, and then move forward. That's a good point. Find the why. Find the why. I presume after MIT, everything was a breeze. It Everything was much, much easier, man, going down. I mean, I, I think intellectual horsepower, like in terms of pure thinking challenges, conceptual challenges. I haven't come across anything that was as challenging as an MIT, right? But as a leader in organizations, you have to build different muscle. And so MIT doesn't teach you the muscle of how to lead large teams. It doesn't teach you the muscle of how to handle difficult personalities. It doesn't teach you the muscle of how to handle situations like restructuring of an organization where you have to make tough choices on the people that you retain in the organization and things like that. I mean, MIT doesn't teach you to do those things. So in terms of like the, I always think about it as sort of the the IQ and the EQ, 
MIT equips you very well, maybe one of the best institutions in the world around the IQ side of things, but it left a lot to be desired in those days on the EQ side of things. And so that's something that I've had to cultivate through a variety of different challenging and beneficial experiences throughout my professional life. And I want to come to that a little bit, Vijay, but so after MIT, what was the next step if you can just walk us through the evolution? Sure. While I was at MIT, you know, I certainly had my series of setbacks at times academically. You know, it's like when you're an Indian kid and parents are immigrants and studies are the front and center priority, then you get your first B in college, right? It's certainly, you feel devastated, like yep. what is wrong with me, right? I mean, I think for me, that really helped me sort of pivot towards other areas. I've always loved public speaking and debating and things like that. And, you know, I got more involved in student government and things in college and I ultimately ended up becoming the student body president for MIT when I was there. It was an awesome experience to be able to address all the freshmen at convocation and be able to have more of an interaction with some of the administration at MIT. But through that process, I mean, I think this connection between business and technology emerged. When I was coming out of college and deciding what I wanted to do next in terms of the next step of my career, I came to the conclusion that I was like, hey, I don't think I'm going to go work for HP or Intel or Oracle or anybody like pure sort of true tech, but that I wanted to do something that was one foot in business, one foot in technology. I looked around at different consulting firms and ultimately chose to go to work for Ernst & Young coming out of college because I wanted to do business technology consulting, right? It was a great fit. I've always been very customer-centric, problem-solving-centric, and consulting was perfect because you're thrown into a situation where a customer has a particular problem that can be solved through technology, and your job is to solve the problem. So it was a perfect fit for me. I was based in New York City. My first client was down in Princeton, New Jersey. It was a pharmaceutical company, Bristol-Myers Squibb. And they wanted to use data and analytics at the time to build one of the first data warehouses that was going to take medical claims information as well as drug prescription data. And basically for different conditions, be able to show that their drugs were more effective than some of their competitor drugs. And so it was a super cool project in the sense that this idea of data and analytics just was beginning to emerge at that particular time back in 1995, 1996. And to be at the forefront of that was super cool. So, you know, I spent my evenings at the local Barnes and Nobles in, in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, just sitting there reading whatever books I could about databases and data warehouses and different types of data structures and just was so fun to then be in a client environment and understand what the researchers were trying to do, what the pharmaceutical sales reps and were trying to do in terms of how they could convince doctors, the business processes around really telling the doctors about Bristol-Myers squid drugs and things like that. That whole 
business process to data to technology end-to-end life cycle was sort of just really, really fascinating for me and something that sort of defined kind of my operating model throughout the career. So I did that for a few years. And then after uh, a couple of years at Ernst & Young, another smaller consulting firm asked me to help them start up a business intelligence practice. And so, you know, I wanted to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. And so I jumped to a company called James Martin at the time, which eventually became Headstrong and helped them develop their data warehousing and business intelligence practice that really was an awesome experience because they got to really provide the thought leadership for the firm and work with a lot of different types of customers and understand different cultures across different industries, yet at the same time, being able to apply my technical knowledge. So again, it was just one foot in the business side, one foot in the technology side, you know, on a really important topic that still shapes us in so many ways today, but also the opportunity to be a little bit more entrepreneurial and drive thought leadership. And I was writing in magazines and giving speeches at different conferences on business intelligence and data warehousing back in my late 20s, traveling all over the country. So it was a great time to be able to do all of those things. So those were my first few years coming out of college. And it's extremely important formative years just in terms of really providing some lift under my career trajectory. That's great. So Vijay, you have obviously worked at Ford TD Ameritrade and now Johnson Controls. I mean, those are three pretty different industries, at least to me at the surface level. I know you love automobiles. You know, you live in Michigan. But what made you switch? And is that a difficult thing if somebody is looking to switch industries across the board? You know, after I'd been in industry for a few years in consulting, you know, I went back and I got my MBA and wanted to get more of the business side of technology and things. And I think that's been an important skill throughout my career. But I had met my wife, Anuja, at the time. She's from Michigan and we wanted to start a family in Michigan. We were getting married. And so the Ford opportunity ended up being ideal in the sense that we, it was right in Ann Arbor, which is where I still live. They were really on the onset of e-commerce and selling cars to dealers and consumers directly. They were pioneers and telematics with the work that they were doing with Qualcomm around Wincast. You put all of those different elements together, right? It was super exciting to be at a company that seemed to really be moving towards becoming more of a technologically centric automotive company. And Ford was a great opportunity because, you know, I came in through a a leadership program, entry-level management, and then quickly was moved through various different parts of the business growing different competencies, meeting new people. And then very quickly, by the age of 35, I was running an organization of 5,000 people. So just I learned a ton about all areas of technology, running global data centers, establishing offshore development centers in India, in vehicle computing and strategy to eventually running our application development group. And it was awesome. I have fantastic relationships with people at Ford. In fact, a lot of my current team has some connection back to Ford in some way, shape, or form. But, you know, at every point, and the reason, you know, I went there is that there were really interesting problems to solve. 
every place you reach a point where you feel like, okay, have I grown enough from this experience? For me, it's always been about learning. And so part of it was, okay, do I feel like I'm going to continue to learn and grow in this experience? You know, am I still passionate about the industry, how it works and the processes in the industry? Or do I want to do something else? So the transition from Ford to Ameritrade, an old mentor of mine from Ford, who was my boss and the CIO at the time, he went over and became the chief operating officer of the Ameritrade. And he said, hey, if you want to try something different, why don't you come over and you can form new R&D advanced tech capability. You know, you can stay in Michigan. We're pretty spread out across the country. After getting past my own ego of going from leading a 5,000 person organization to having a very small kind of R&D function, this new entity, I took a step back and I said, you know, it would be cool to do something different, learn something new. I already always had a passion for financial services. My dad is a financial planner. He had changed his career from engineering to financial advising in his early 50s. And so I always really loved stocks and trading and things like that. In fact, one of my first summer jobs was on Wall Street. So it was a really, really natural fit. And I felt I could bring a lot of value just in terms of understanding scale and data and processing and analytics and stuff like that. So went over to Ameritrade and my responsibilities grew to the point where I became CIO of, I loved, I loved that opportunity. It was a fantastic opportunity and I probably would not have left if we hadn't been acquired in 2020, but it was great team, great culture, very motivating in terms of we were really trying to democratize investing for our client, individual clients and individual investors. A lot of work around AI and data and analytics and built a high performance team, just really leveraging agile software engineering and things like that. And then as sometimes in business happens, the deal with Charles Schwab happened and then they decided not to retain any of the leadership team. And so was without an opportunity there at, at Schwab. But there were a lot of interesting opportunities that emerged after that. One of them was Johnson Controls. And I didn't know anything about Johnson Controls other than that they had had an automotive focus. But then as they began to talk about what they wanted to do around sustainability and, you know, I read Bill Gates's book around global warming that shared that 40% of all carbon emissions comes from buildings. You know, I started to think, what better a capstone for my career than to sink my teeth into leveraging all of the knowledge that I had around data analytics and AI into the sustainability field. Just by continuing to have those dialogues with people at Johnson Controls and their desire to build the OpenBeam platform, which is our platform for sustainability and energy efficiency and smart buildings, it felt like a very natural opportunity for me to sink my teeth into. For me, it's more about problems or spaces that I find meaningful. These three different companies all had very interesting problems for me to sink my teeth into where I could bring value based upon my experiential set. But what I would tell people is like being a multi-domain player is, is invigorating because you get to see the same patterns that emerge across these different functional domains, yet 
they're completely different problem spaces. And so for me, it's been a huge growth learning opportunity just in terms of learning all these industries, learning all these cultures, understanding the commonalities. Two things I took away from that, and just correct me if I'm wrong, is knowing when you've reached your ceiling of learning, and then maybe it's, that's the time to move on and not having an ego. If you're managing 5,000 people, maybe suddenly you have to manage 500. Do not have an ego in kind of making that shift. Is that accurate thing to say? I think that's very spot on, Sanjay. These are all like hard things, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think people always, it's hard to kind of just be deliberate about your decision-making process, about when the time is right to go do something else, right? And in general, I would say the human tendency is to stay longer than you're supposed to stay at any given place. And it's because there's a whole numbering variety of factors. I mean, obviously relationships, comfort, compensation, safety, all these things are very real in people's mind on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I think that's why people in the past have ended up staying companies for 20 plus, 30 plus years. And I mean, some people genuinely do like culture in an environment, but I think when you get to the levels that I'm at and a lot of my peers are at, you have to know when done enough either in a role or in a company and it's time to turn it over to somebody else so that they can put a fresh, not a fresh perspective on it, right? So that's, I totally agree with you. On the ego thing, I mean, that's another huge learning. And I think some of that only comes through the maturity of having gone through these large experiences, right? And it really comes down to tuning into what it is that gives you joy and happiness and meaning on a day-to-day basis in terms of the value that you create. And so larger isn't necessarily better. Some people enjoy large because that's what brings them energy in terms of leading large teams of people and things like that. And there, there are certainly have been lots of experiences in my life where that has brought me energy, especially if I'm dealing with I'm leading a large team. But then there are also times when it's like you want to flex different muscles and just really re-emphasize that intellectual curiosity and maybe have more time and space to write more, read more, evaluate new concepts. And having a large organization doesn't give you the white space and the canvas to be able to do that. And so I think putting aside that ego and really tuning into, hey, what is motivating for me right now? That's something I've only learned through that experience at Ameritrade. Because it created the creative juices and an opportunity to grow in a different way, I think I'll always relish and understand that putting your ego aside and doing a be comfortable being an individual contributor or a small team leader shouldn't be seen as something that's suboptimal. You know, it should be seen as something that is just different from what you might be currently doing. No, I think that's an excellent point. Following to that, you took a six-month break, sort of like a gap year. Do you recommend that for people? Because that's not traditionally what a lot of people do. They just go from one to another, to another, to another, which is what you probably have done. I, I have to say that taking those breaks is one of the best things that you can do in your life. And, you know, I think in retrospect, if I could have taken a year, I would have done that because 
In the case for me, when I took six months between Ameritrade and DCI, I had actually said yes to go back to Ford. And so that was still committed to that. And from a fit standpoint, it just ended up not being the right fit, you know, and that's maybe another lesson is, is that can't really go back. You can only go forward because, you know, maybe all the things that made you leave in the first place or the things that still are the reasons that it isn't the right shit for you today. But I had been contemplating going back to that and, and it just didn't work out for a variety of different reasons. And then when I chose not to go, go to that opportunity, I spent a lot of time soul searching about what's the mistake that I made? Why did I choose that? You know, maybe just I had like nothing lined up at that point in time. And so I think there was just a little bit of uncertainty in that whole journey. But I think as I grew through the six month period, right? And, you know, it wasn't a total just six month hiatus because I was already beginning to talk to Johnson Controls about the opportunities. January of 2021 emerged and I had left uh, Charles Schwab in October or Ameritrade in October. And then I was going to join Ford in November. So it wasn't sort of a little bit of a time of dissonance. But then as I sort of really formalized the opportunity with Johnson Controls and then got closer and closer to the point where I was starting, I was really starting to enjoy my sabbatical. And the reason is because all of these opportunities and different avenues for creativity and leadership and contribution take time to emerge. Because in large jobs, you don't have the time to create content, network, things like that. When you plant those seeds, then it takes time for those seeds to begin to blossom into opportunities, right? So just as I was beginning to onboard onto Johnson Controls, there were board advisory board opportunities that were emerging. There were small consulting opportunities that were emerging. There was teaching opportunities that were emerging. And I just had a lot more space in my day and my time to also just really do the things that I enjoyed doing on a day-to-day -day basis, like getting exercise, getting fresh air, taking my dog for a walk, meditating. And so my generation, Generation X, and especially immigrant parents, you're so conditioned that throughout the point that you're in elementary school, in high school, you know, it's, it's all about the work, the achievements, the outcomes. And so literally when I looked back and took a look at it, I mean, I've been working without a break since I was 16 years old. I mean, that's like 30 plus years. That doesn't offer you the time to just really step back and say, okay, like you get this one life on the planet. What is it that you really want it to be? What is it that you find energy out of? And so highly recommend to everybody, some companies formalize it, but taking a six month to one year sabbatical at a minimum every five to 10 years so that, you know, you can really take a step back and then figure out like, okay, what brings you energy, creativity, and purpose in your day-to-day -day life? That's a very, very valuable point that you make because most people worry, hey, if I show that on my resume, what will people think? But you're saying that's actually helped you bring more opportunities. But you also did holistic medicine, meditation, etc. I myself do some of that, but that's a whole different podcast. 
How do you deal with the challenges of balancing the Indian and the American part of it? Is that difficult or is that pretty easy? Well, I'm, I'm really lucky in the sense that my wife is also Indian. Her family's from Punjab. She spent six years growing up in India. We partner with each other on all of these practices. And so she offers a ton of encouragement to me around meditating with her and a lot of the cultural things that are infused in our lives are driven by her interests and things that I didn't necessarily do as a child, like in terms of Bollywood music and a lot of the Indian cultural aspects of dance and a lot of the holidays and things like that. And she's done an amazing job of bringing that into our family and with our children as well. And so in terms of fusing those things together, I think having somebody who is continuously bringing that into your day-to-day life and really encouraging you to have other perspectives makes it a lot easier than if you had to sort of bring that in on your own. It also is amazing like that, that through that process, especially now in our older boys who are in high school and college, that connection back to Indian culture has been fundamentally solidified and crystallized in the sense that they love Indian music, they love Indian culture and Indian dancing and things like that. So that automatically like becomes just like a part of your life that you can connect into. And, you know, for me, the meditation and the spirituality and, you know, during my six months sabbatical, I read the Bhagavad Gita, which is, it's an amazing philosophical scripture that I think is the guidebook for life. I mean, something that was written 3000 years ago and still has such applicability in terms of the way that your mind orients itself to and puts them around you is amazing. So I'm just really, really fortunate that, you know, I, I live in a, a support system that encourages me to constantly connect back into my Indian roots. Well, that's fantastic. We have a little north-south thing going on in the house, but that's a very interesting thing that you said. For our listeners who don't know a lot about Johnson Controls, which a lot of people don't, just give a short idea because you have really taken that company, a traditional 100-year-old company, as I said, made it, making it a leader in sustainability. So if you can just tell. Absolutely. I mean, it starts with the fact that, I mean, we're a 135-year-old company that's always been focused in the building space. And so Warren Johnson, you know, our founder, invented the smart thermostat over 100 years ago, and he was part of the invention of the first building control system. And so throughout this century plus of time, Johnson Controls has always been a leader in buildings. And so every industry faces its time and challenge to really digitize. In our case, the opportunity was now, especially given sort of the broader mandate and opportunity around decarbonization and sustainability. I mean, you can see what's going on around the world in terms of needs for additional cooling, especially given the temperatures that the world is seeing and also the unpredictability of the weather patterns, but also just the role that different structures play in people's day-to-day lives, right? Uh, And I think everybody, when you think about buildings, you automatically think about the buildings that you work in. But beyond that, we have a heavy role in the operations of hospitals and the operations of schools and operations of universities and airports. And so as you look at this broad canvas of 
types of spaces that people congregate in, the opportunity was enormous to help make those spaces much more efficient, safe, healthy, sustainable through digital technologies like data and AI. And so we launched our Open Blue Smart Buildings platform back in August of 2020. And it's been a phenomenal opportunity with a lot of different types of customers globally to demonstrate how they can improve conditions inside the facilities for the occupants that exist there, yet at the same time, driving towards decarbonization goals and getting gaining energy efficiency. And I think this also has given society a lot more awareness on the role that different buildings and spaces play in terms of people's day-to-day lives, as well as the impact that it has, you know, on our net zero carbon journey as a society. So being at the center of that and really showing people, internal employees, customers, how leveraging digital technologies like Open Blue, we can change the trajectory on both their business performance as well as how they show up as a company in the world. I mean, that's been uh, an awesome opportunity. So internally building a, a startup, in essence, a digital startup, which is what we're doing with Open Blue, has been an exhilarating experience. And I think as more and more people see the value of what we're able to generate through our digital solutions, that begins to take on a life of its own and pick up even more steam. But making a difference, as you said earlier, on 40% of greenhouse gases come from buildings. So that's very important. So very impressive. So it's been an amazing journey, Vijay. New Jersey, MIT, now Ann Arbor, Johnson Controls. But I feel there are many chapters ahead. So where do you see the journey going from here? Oh, that's a very hard thing to predict, Sanjay. I mean, I think for me, I've gotten to the point where, you know, I just want to keep adding value in terms of what I'm doing and making a difference in society. And, you know, I have a lot of opportunities to continue to grow here at Johnson Controls and grow the team here and deliver on some of our core objectives. What I'd like to see uh, an evolution into is other passions, which is, you know, my mom was a professor for many, many years in a community college. And so I have a passion for educating. And so I want to continue to find ways where I can educate people. I have a passion for writing. As you've seen some of my articles on LinkedIn and things like that, I'd like to find more time to put pen to paper and contribute more from a writing perspective. I love to speak, you know, at different conferences and things like that. So that'll be another area that I continue to do. And and ultimately, it's just about learning, especially now with generative AI, you know, and looking across my life, I see that as one of the great new platforms that's emerging in society. Really now taking the time to understand generative AI and how it operates, what impact that it's going to have going forward. I think that's, that's an outstanding opportunity for all of us and especially being a technologist and so passionate about technology, that's going to be an area that I spend a lot of time around. There's a lot of projects, so to speak, Sanjay, in the, the near-term horizon that, you know, are going to keep me more than occupied. And then on the other side of it, you know, I want to continue to become more spiritually and more mentally, just continue to just improve myself with these different practices like meditation and different kinds of 
creating exercises and just really starting to continuing to evolve myself so that I can be built to last and, and continue to process adversity in a positive way. So I think there's lots of opportunities in the forefront. That's amazing. So from the future, how about going a little to the past? If you were talking to Vijay, who is graduating out of MIT, what would you tell him just briefly? That's a great question, Sanjay. I've often thought about that. And if you went and asked my parents, right, how would you characterize young Vijay? They would say, go, go, go. That's what they would say. He's a go, 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 right? And never wants to sit down, stop, take a breath, go, go, go. What I'm learning now coming up on 50 here is the journey is long. The journey has many different chapters, both and downs and twists and turns and so on and so forth. What many go-getters, type A as we call them, right, see this like linear path, what they perceive to be the top. I would have put myself into that category coming out of MIT. There is no linear path and the journey needs to be just that, the journey. And I would tell my old self, enjoy the, the journey. It's okay to take detours on the journey. It's okay to take a break and rest during the journey and maybe try something different. It's okay to take a step back in that linear path or sideways so you can learn something new or build new relationships. I think if I were to go back in time, these sabbaticals that I've come to relish would have been more the norm than the anomaly, which is what it is right now. And so I want to just tell the next generation that and I think the next generation gets a lot more of this, which is take space, enjoy the journey, be passionate, learn, grow, find meaning in your life, figure out ways how to make the world a better place and evolve from there and be happy at the end of the day. I mean, most importantly, why are we here? We're here because we want to be happy. Happiness comes out of meaning and really meaning into what it is that you're doing and how it is that you feel about your life stage at any given point in time. So sometimes you know, I wish I had taken more time to look out the windows on each side of the vehicle instead of the only the one that was right in front of me. Very well said that sometimes maybe you have to go slow to go fast. Well, that's fantastic. We usually conclude by a lightning round of questions, just one or two sentences. Sure. And this is a question we ask everybody. So what is your definition of Indianness? Your definition? My definition of Indianness is staying connected to the roots and the cultures and the mindsets that connect you back to, for you, what it means to be an Indian. And then fusing that into your current approach and philosophy to life. That's what I would say is Indianness to me. Very well said. One person, whether it's in India or outside India, alive and not a family member that inspires you of Indian origin. I would say, you know, when I, I mean, there are many, many people inspire me, but I would say right now, I'm very inspired by what Satya Nadella has done at, at Microsoft, coming into a company that a founder had made great for innovation, and then really coming in as a completely different style of leader 
listening to employees, understanding the culture and really building a culture first organization, being so vulnerable in terms of the personal challenges that he even faced in this life and how he went about taking Microsoft to the next level. And now leadership that he has personally demonstrated around what we're doing with AI. I mean, he embodies a lot of the attributes that I would hope to be able to demonstrate myself someday as a leader in terms of humility, vulnerability, forward thinking, progress, inspiration. And while at the same time, having dealt with some personal adversity and and nonetheless being positive and stoic through all of that light. So very, very impressive individual from my standpoint. His name comes up a lot. So, well, Vijay, I'm about to conclude, but you said something which reminded me, you know, we talked about grades. I tell people there are two acceptable grades in an Indian family household. It's an A plus or an A. I think you know where I'm going with that, but really it is so great to have you and for you to open up. I learned a lot personally from this. So thank you a lot, Vijay, and really best wishes forward. And hopefully, you know, if you ever come to DC, we'd love to meet in person and catch up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, thank you, Sanjay, for having me. This is such an awesome podcast that developed here and a huge opportunity to interact with other successful Indians. So someday, you know, you'll host a conference of all of us and we can all get together and share stories about our childhood growing up. That's the plan. That's the plan. As I said, two profession rule, the two grade rule. We have many rules that Vijay, you and I can talk about, but thank you so, so very much. This was really inspirational. Thank you for listening to the Indianist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.